You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Friends, today we're talking with a freshly minted doctor. I don't know if she's the most freshly minted, maybe she is, that we've ever spoken to, I don't know. Mm. Dr. Joy Clarkson, who has just uh, completed her PhD thesis um, around the intersection of art and theology and death, and how does art prepare people to to die a good death. Um, And her research in general kind of focuses on the intersection between literature, moral formation and devotional practice. And so we talked, she's she's coming, well, she's not coming, she'll be teaching a class called The Art of Death and the Theology of Hope at Regent in the Fall, but she's also written a book called Aggressively Happy, A Realist's Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life, where she basically just believes that joy is more fundamental than despair. So, and you, you get this sense that she actually does believe that joy is more fundamental than despair in the way that she is, part of her disposition, but part of the way that I think she's been formed and the way she's sought to form her understanding of faith and life is not devoid of sadness and grief, but actually Mm. that joy in the presence of that and how do you sort of continue to hold both of those things together with joy actually being more, yeah, more fundamental than despair and death. Yeah, it's it's not a conversation that, many people want to have us when it comes to death but she uh did her phd on that and and tackles the the question really well and so that's what her class is going to be about and she just has a such a nuanced way and a really fun and lighthearted way of uh bringing about the the particularities of artworks both historical uh, and and in the modern period, and how that can that can teach us how to both live well in this life and also to face death. So this mm-hmm. is a wonderful conversation. Yeah. So we hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Joy Clarkson. Joy, welcome, or Dr. Clarkson, actually. Let's use that. Welcome to the Regent College podcast. Thank you. It is it is wonderful to join you today. And I must say that I do enjoy hearing Dr. Clarkson. You, you try not to be super extra about it after you get a PhD, but when you've done a lot of work, it does feel pretty good. That's what I thought. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I could just call you Joy, but I was like, no, but you've it's just happened, so it's fresh, and so it's important to use that. So <laughs> Well, it's funny too, because people have naturally fallen into calling me Dr. Joy. Like I, also, I, yeah, right. It's just quite funny. I did like a little lecture for a society here, and when one of the students was introducing me, he got. I think he was just a bit nervous public speaking, and then he just he just said, "And so, if you'll please welcome the stage, Dr. Joy." And <laughs> oh, that's very cute. Uh, sounds a little more like a you know like I'm gonna have a talk show. Yeah, than it yeah. Yeah. Doctrine of theology, but I still, I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of works. That's great. Do you want to tell us, tell us a little bit about your kind of journey, your journey of faith, a little bit about your life, whatever you want to share, but how, and how did you become interested in art and death? So, but tell us a bit about, about you and your journey in life. Hmm. Well, I think it's difficult to say how did I become interested in art and death? Because I think these are both fascinations that I have had in odd ways, as long as I can remember. Mm. And um, only in these latter days did I come to kind of 
look at how they relate to each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I was raised in a very uh, bookish family. I was homeschooled. So there was mm-hmm. lots of reading out loud and um, traveling and music. Um, so I was raised in a very kind of literary and uh, musical. I, we did a lot of arts in our family, theater and stuff. Um, and in my in my college years, I went to a Christian school where I had a great experience, but oddly, it was in the context of being around a whole bunch of Christians who seemed quite like certain about what they believed that I had kind of a, a crisis of faith, mm-hmm. um, pretty ongoing for about a year and a half. And I just, I just, I had many, I had a lot of questions, but I think that didn't even quite get to it. It was kind of an existential um feeling of how, how can we be in touch with what's reality? How can we know? And one of the only things that kind of helped me stay in, in the realm of trust and belief was art. There was something about music specifically, I think, but also Mm. um, poetry and stories that helped uh, make belief believable, Um, you know, Mm. helped uh, render the beautiful elements of Christianity that I had been taught growing up, make it possible to believe in, to experience. Um, so that was that that was a part of my journey um, and and also thinking, you know, I think those kind of theological moments along the way were realizing that Christianity is about the incarnation. It's about mm. something that happened that you can touch and see mm-hmm. and taste. It's about a defeat of death, um, that it's something more than just sitting in your head and trying to make complete sense of the world rationally, which was something right. that was becoming very burdensome to me with all my questions. Mm-hmm. So I think. That's a very, hitting the, a broad yeah. brush and describing, you know, about a decade of growth in, in two minutes. But yeah. that was kind of my faith journey. And I think tied in with that, the interest in um, in death and art, um, I think something I've been interested in, even like as I was just describing, that there was something about art that made it possible for me to be open to a posture of belief, open to Christianity. So I've always been interested in kind of how, what art can do for us, why people kind of just assume that art is formative, that it changes how we feel about the world. Um, but I was always curious about why, what is it, what is it doing to us? What is it making, how does it make things possible for us? And so in my PhD, I wanted to kind of ask that question, how, how can art form us and how does it form us? Mm. And, um, and death was kind of an interesting question with that, right? Because if we're saying like someone like James K. Smith, you know, he talks about cultural liturgies that shape not just what we believe, but what we love. Something I was interested in was um, how can that be true about kind of some of the most difficult things? So, you know, um, a Christian belief about death is that death is not final, that Christ has risen from the dead, that we will all rise from the dead. Um but that is kind of fundamentally at odds with our everyday experience of life, mm, right? Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I remember having this moment once when I was in college where I was like, I don't know anyone who's died and like come back. Like we don't, there's no one to like tell us about, yeah. you know, you, you kind of get these strange moments. But so, so I was interested in, is it possible that can art actually kind of rewrite our most fundamental um experiences of life and so I thought that was kind of an interesting Mm. test case between those two things aside from just you know generally being a slightly morose person who was thought about dying a lot um so so those were that that was kind of how the the project came about was thinking about what art makes possible why why art has the capacity to shape our our emotions and our feelings and then looking at kind of that test that most fundamental test case of can art help prepare us for death Mm -hmm. um 
that that's kind of the roundabout way yeah. that I ended up in my thesis. Oh, yeah. so cool. So good. Well, I, I want to get more into that question. Um, can art help us to prayers us for death? But before we do, I, I want to first, I'd love to first talk about your book that you uh, have written on being happy. And um, it's titled Aggressively Happy, a realist, gu- a realistic Guide to Believing in the Goodness of Life. So first, just first question, what inspired you to write this book? Well, you know, I thought I was writing a PhD on death, so I just needed to balance yeah, it out. Yeah, just balance it out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yin and yang, you know. Yeah, yeah, yin and yang. Um, but the the title of the book, which people have varying and strong reactions to, uh, actually came from an interaction I had on Twitter. Um, where, excellent. Such a good yeah. place for that. That's an excellent place for a book title or something. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. And I, so I, I just, partially out of personality, partially out of... Uh, self-preservation I tend to not tweet lots of negative things not joining on the dog piles because I'm not ever sure that it really changes anyone's mind so I usually I enjoyed Twitter but I usually used it to like tweet about nerdy Jane Austen things or be like I saw a nice sunset and so one time I, I tweeted something very innocuous and someone responded and said, this is disgusting you're so aggressively happy and um <laughs> I thought it was funny um and you know I, he was being playful, you know, like it wasn't like a yeah. terrible insult, but it was funny because it struck me that there's this kind of assumption that if you are, if you try to focus on positive things, if you are joyful, there's an assumption that you are either like stupid, like you just don't know Naive. anything about the yeah. world. Yeah. Um, you have not read a news article or yeah. whatever, um, that you're insensitive to other people's sufferings or that you just haven't, um, experienced anything really worthwhile of it just it just assumes you haven't you've had a pretty easy life Mm -hmm. and it was funny because for me as will come out if you read this book um I dispositionally am on the one hand I am I am my name is joy I I know that's what's singing there's a lot of pressure in your name right there (laughs) I know I know but as you'd also learn if you if you read the book my middle name is Marie which means you so again (laughs) it's the PhD about death book about happiness but I, I, I'm not dispositionally prone to optimism and I have, you know, I've had a pretty blessed and easy life in many ways, but I've had a few real sorrows. And so I felt like the, the joy that I have is not, um, it's not a, a shallow thing. It's something that I've, I, I want to be, I want to experience. So mm. in all of, in all the silly tweet, I thought, yeah, I am aggressively happy. That's a good mm. show. <laughs> and so then I added it to my Twitter bio. And then a few years later, I wrote a book about it. Love it. <laughs> and so that's so good. That's such a good story. So how does one be, how does one be aggressively happy? So like you're saying, it's, you're either, you know, naive, you haven't read anything or, you know, whatever. How, what, then that's not that. What, how does one be aggressively happy? What does that look like? Well, I mean, the thing is I wrote a six, 60,000 word book on it. So you, know, you might so have to read, read that. I know that's right. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> I mean, tweet it's, version. yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's not a, I don't think it's a how to, um, no. you know, thing, but I think it's a matter of practicing and cultivating a disposition towards life. And mm. I think that a part of it is, and this is really, um, I think at the core of it, you know, I, that 
the subtitle is a realist guide, mm-hmm. which implies that there's something about happiness that is real or fundamental mm-hmm. or more mm-hmm. real than sorrow and suffering. And I think one of the fundamental things in the book I wanted to get across is that um, the world being difficult and dark and sad, we only know that it's difficult and dark and sad because we have a sense that it could should be Different. whole and good mm-hmm. and just. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, we are only able to resist injustice, heal our wounds in so much as we have a sense that there's kind of a steady underlying more fundamental goodness. Yeah. So the book is, is kind of resting on that premise, which is to some extent a matter of faith. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a book about, uh, I have this in the, uh, this quote in the opening, but Wendell Berry's, it has this wonderful little phrase in the poem, Mad Farmer's Liberation Front, where he says, um, be joyful, be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. And that's mm-hmm. what the book is about. So yeah. the book is arranged mm-hmm. around, I think it's 10 verbs. Yeah. Um, and it's um, been enough months since the launch that I might forget some of them. But the general gist is it's things like befriend sadness. Remember, you have a body flounder. Well, um, tell yourself tell you- a good story. Believe in, believe in God. Mm-hmm. Be like Mr. Collins. Um Various things like that. So except each love. each chapter is kind of yes. Expect accept love, love and expect the end of the world. Yes, yes. There you go. All Those important are the, things. You got most of them. You got you in my whole country. <laughs> do you do you feel like somebody has to have faith in order to to live in live into these like faith in God? Well, you know, um, it's the the thing is the book is written from my own perspective. Um, and when I say that you have to have faith, I think what I partially mean is that you have to at least have faith that there is some goodness in the world. You have to have faith that life is worth living. And that's mm-hmm. why the opening chapter is decide to live. You have to, uh, and that is kind of a, a matter of faith. It's not something we can rationally prove. I think mm-hmm. you can't count up the scales and say, you know, is there more pleasure than pain in the world? You know, that, that is a matter of faith. And I think um, for me, uh, finding joy and happiness, it has had to have that spiritual, those spiritual roots and spiritual underpinning of life, Mm -hmm. having a fundamental meaning Mm -hmm. of being fundamentally loved. And all Mm -hmm. of those things have to be rooted in God for me. But I, um, it's been, it was fun to discuss the book. You know, there are, I've had many readers who are not Christians Mm-hmm. Um, or who who are not do not believe in God or of a different faith. It was fun to discuss this book with mm. um, Shadi Hamid over at the Atlantic because he's Muslim, and I discussed it with his atheist co-host, and we had lots of interesting discussions. But I think that um, you know, I think there's a desire to live a good life and to find happiness, and I think we can. I think that's a fundamentally human desire. You know, it's mm-hmm. the desire for eudaimonia for flourishing, and so. I would say that if you chase, if you chase the scent of, of joy and of happiness, it will lead you to something divine. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I think the, the desire to practice an aggressively happy life is something that is fundamentally human more than it is a specific religion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there a, would you just say there's a distinction between joy and happiness? Cause I have heard people say that joy is something that's kind of deeper and happiness is the thing that's more would you would you separate those things out or would you not would you keep them together? Or? Um, you know, this is a funny thing that a lot a lot of people have said this to me. Yeah. Um, I don't I don't actually think that 
we need to separate them. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, you know, like I think the distinction people want to make is that there is that there is happiness, which is related to your circumstances. Right. And then there's joy, which is kind of a spiritual disposition, you know, something that is that um, a piece that passes all understanding. But something that I think is important on a scriptural level, and I talk about this in the book, is that when Jesus says, you know, when he goes to the Beatitudes and he says, blessed are those um, who are poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, uh, that word could also be translated as happy or lucky. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it doesn't mean these people are spiritually joyful. It means it literally just means happy or lucky. Mm. And I think that, um, I think that we are, I think making that division, um, obfuscates the fact that God in fact made us to flourish, to mm. be in a garden where we were well-fed, where we had a mate, where mm. things were good. And that, that is, that is actually God's will and delight and desire for us. And that we can experience happiness while we're poor in spirit or mourning because mm. we're connected to that more fundamental source of joy, but that's not somehow a separate thing from God's desire mm. that humans flourish and be happy. Mm. And I don't know if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, don't think, mm. I don't think scripturally there is such a distinction. I think right. that's, yeah. I think it's a little inheritance from our Puritan backgrounds. There are many good things from Puritanism, but, that uh, the over-spiritualization of things is one that I would, I would be grumpy about. <laughs> so in other words, in some sense, happiness isn't a denial of the things that are wrong in the world or that are wrong in your life. Rather, it's an embrace. It's an embrace of them. And still, I don't know, still, it's not even maybe I'm trying to think of your definition. It's not even a a choice to be happy. It's just an embrace of all of life. Cause even your first chapter is what is it befriending grief or befriending sadness is, mm -hmm. is your first, first mm -hmm. chapter. Can you elab mm -hmm. elaborate on this? I guess, cause I know you wrote the book in, it was it 2020 that you, you wrote mm -hmm. it in kind mm -hmm. of like, yes. you know, I mean, and, and still in different parts of the world, um, uh, COVID and the pandemic is affecting in different ways. Um, but for other parts of the world, like we've, you know, maybe kind of come out of that, but 2020 was kind of like the, the height of it in some, some sense. And so I don't know, do you want to elaborate on that? Like it, happiness isn't necessarily denial of things going mm -hmm. wrong in the world, but then what, yeah, what is it? Well, that's a great, that's an immense question. Um, but I think, so in that chapter, I wrote about the fact that just, in my own experience, you know, it's funny because when I would start writing these things, you read them six months later and you go, oh, I'm so, I'm so extra. I'm so special. Why did I write that? <laughs> but there, I've always felt in my, in my own experience of life that there were these two kind of twin, um, twin parts of myself. One part of myself just genuinely enjoys being alive. I, mm. I like, I just, I think that I enjoy being alive more than the average person. And I think that's probably wrong. Like probably we all enjoy, you know, <laughs> I'm probably not special, but I, I enjoy food. I enjoy loving people. I, I love music. There's just this deep enjoyment of the good things in life. And that's coupled with this very fragile, dark um, kind of awareness of how broken and fragile and how broken and breakable life is and, and kind of a sense of how can we ever be happy when there's so many broken things. Mm -hmm. And I used to feel like these two parts of myself were like, they were, they couldn't be wedded together. They were these two separate 
realities. But what I started to realize, and I think this is a part of, this is what I meant by befriending sadness, is that both of those reactions, both those responses of joy and sorrow are, are kind of a willingness to take life at face value, to appreciate it for what it really is. And the reality is that there really are good things in the world, where there are good people, really good experiences. Um, and there is profound brokenness, loss, and justice. And we want one of those things to be true. Um, but they're both true. And a part of you know being a realist is not trying to make life fit our our neat little tidy story. Mm-hmm. And and a part of being able to deeply enjoy life is also being able to <sighs> deeply grieve things. And I think that, you know, I talk about the fact that um, grief is a right response to it's, it's recognizing that something had great value and we don't have it anymore, mm-hmm. but that is recognizing the value and goodness in the world. And that's really what joy is as well. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. both of those things are recognizing the inherent weightiness and goodness of life Mm -hmm. and so i think happiness is not a denial of sadness they're both actually recognitions of Mm -hmm. the fact that life is good that there are things worth valuing and things worth cherishing um and i think that you know in a particularly dark season of my life one of my spiritual directors said you know your capacity for joy grows with your capacity for grief precisely Mm -hmm. because it's a recognition of Mm-hmm. of value wow. things and value in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah, it's this thing. We were talking with with Shelley Stearns, who's another kind of art and theology person. We were talking about I kind of had a philosophical moment, which I should never do, but the whole <laughs> thing, there's almost like that the like, but it's, it's it's linking in my mind the so the whole idea that actually the fact that there is the capacity the fact that things are sad shows us that there actually is a capacity for it to be good. Because otherwise, if it wasn't, if it didn't feel sad, then it would just be everything would just be the same. So it must yeah. be if we feel that it's sad because we know there's a possibility that it doesn't have to be sad, or that it doesn't we, have, you know, yeah. There's something in us that knows. We feel, we feel loss because there's something valuable that has been lost. Right. Mm. Yeah. Which so, so loss implies the value of the lost thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And that the, yes, that's right. Yeah, anyway, it's great. I should never have a philosophical moment, so we'll move away from that. Um, <laughs> now, you talk about Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice um, and how we, you know, we should, you know, we shouldn't maybe hate him as much as we do. Do you want to, do you want to talk, tell us a little bit about Mr. Collins in case people don't know, but, and why do we, why do we hate him, but what does he teach us about happiness and joy and contentment? So um, I've always, so I've always had this kind of sympathy for Mr. Collins. Mr. Collins, of course, is the much maligned clergyman um, uh, in Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen's perhaps most famous novel. He is set to inherit the Bennetts estate because he could only go to sons. So he's the cousin of the Bennetts who have five daughters. Um, And, you know, in the story, he goes to go visit his cousins because back in those days, you could marry your cousins. And he's like, I here I am. I'm a good guy. Just looking for a wife, trying to keep the state in the family, normal stuff. Um, anyway, but he's just really awkward and everyone really hates him. Um, but the thing that's funny to me and is that in the book and then beautifully played in the 1995 BBC miniseries by, uh, is it David Bamber? Is that his name? Um, is the fact that like, there are so many other characters to hate in in Pride and Precious. Mm, right. Um, my, my, I think the one that everyone misses, so of course there's Wickham, you know, Swindler, uh, 
seducer of young girls. Like he's genuinely hateful. Um, I think the one that everyone misses is Mr. Bennett, who actually is responsible for most of the calamities in mm. the book. But everyone's like, ha ha, isn't it funny how he's mean to Mrs. Bennett? And it's like, you know what? If I were a mother of five daughters who were all going to be destitute in a few years, I might have some problems with my nerves too. Anyway, I digress. So I have always felt that it was funny that people were so negative about Mr. Collins because at the end of the day, like he doesn't actually harm anyone. Um, he ends mm. up getting married. Uh, he and his wife have kind of a, a good old fashioned Regency er, uh, marriage of convenience and that she like likes having her study and not having him around. But it's like a pretty happy life. There doesn't seem to be any great um, resentment towards Elizabeth. There seems to be general happiness in the family. And, um, and when I look at Mr. Collins, I think that he, he has kind of a gift that nobody else in the book has, which is that he's pretty content. Mm. And part of the reason I wrote this particular chapter is that, you know, we all get up in our heads about, you know, spiritual joy and facing grief. And, but I think that there's a good deal of happiness in life. That's just what I would call proverbial happiness. It's the happiness of Proverbs. It's the blessed is the man who does this and curses is the man who does that. It's the making good decisions. Mm. Um, it's mastering your life well. It's it's being a person of reasonably good character who knows how to live with your neighbors. And I think that Mr. Collins is quite good at that. Um, mm. he, he kind of crafts a good life for himself. He is contented. He, he learns how to take losses. And I think that a lot of us could learn from that and would be much happier if we could uh, be more content and also learn how to make make a good life. Be just ambitious mm. enough to live a good life, but not so ambitious that you're unhappy. Mm. Um, mm. So both because I enjoy um, stirring the pot on the internet and also because <laughs> I think uh, Mr. Collins is, is much maligned and has so many teachers. I wrote an entire chapter <laughs> good idea wonderful i was gonna say you you're saying you're talking to the to the guys over at the atlantic so people of different faith i wonder whether have you had conversations about the book with people who are not western christians or not kind of kind of living in a kind of the western context at all i'd be just i was just wondering how how it lands if you had any conversations where it lands if it lands differently in different kind of people from different parts of the world that's a great question. I cannot think off the top of my head hmm. um, uh, of any of like the interviews that I've done. Probably, yeah, yeah. Mostly of being in yeah. um, English-speaking areas. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But, but yeah, I'd be curious. I'd be curious. My, yeah, I would be curious here. What yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. That's what I was just thinking. I was like, I wonder how it would land in just different, yeah, in different, different kind of parts of the world or different yeah. contexts. Yeah. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation. But Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm -hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the, on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give. And, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. 
Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. I wonder if we could jump back to what we were initially talking about with uh, art and hope in the midst of death. Um, Can you just share with us uh, how art can give someone hope in the midst of facing death? Mm. Yeah. So I think I will just share a something that I wrote about in my PhD that's quite a concrete example, which is um, there's an artist, one of the most li- uh, performed living artists named mm-hmm. Arvo Pert, who is an Estonian, he is an Estonian composer, um, Orthodox. He's a wonderful character uh, because he creates this heavenly, beautiful, otherworldly music um, and if you ever see pictures of him, he looks, he just looks aggressively happy. He looks effortlessly <laughs> happy, actually. Um, but there was this study where um, they, it was, I think it was a study in Scotland and they studied who, I, I learned this from my brother, uh, who's also a composer. So I stole this study from him, not stole it. He sent it to me and I enjoyed reading about it. Um, but where they studied what music people listen to at hospice. And some of his, his music was the most commonly um requested by people who were dying and they did kind of these surveys of what people said about it and they would say um I felt accompanied I felt like there was a presence Mm. I felt like um I didn't feel alone and it's interesting because Parrot's music very often doesn't have lyrics doesn't have it might have singing but it tends not to have words and so it's amazing that he has this 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 that the music itself has this capacity to comfort people to give them a sense of life beyond death and to feel accompanied um but this is actually reflected in he has a very particular way of composing it's called tintinabuli which he developed in the 80s after a period of i think it was something like seven years of silence Hmm. and the point of it is there's always these two kind of conversations happening in the music there's one that's circular that goes round and round so if you've listened to like spiegel spiegel im spiegel which is the infinity mirror by him it's in tons of movies you recognize when you hear it Mm-hmm. there's one round that's kind of going round and round and then one voice that's constantly climbing a little bit at a time and a little mm-hmm. bit at a time and he said to him this is this is the human experience of experiencing eternity in time that we live these human lives that are kind of caught in the circle of mortality mm-hmm. but that god is also with us and we experience this kind of um, we experience God's transcendence in in one of time, and for him, this was this musical evocation of of what it is to be a Christian. It's to be caught in the death bound, sickness bound world, but also to experience God's presence, which is always moving us upwards. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I just found amazing about this is that when you listen to the way people just talk about it, something in the music itself is opening us to that experience of being accompanied in death mm. toward eternal life. And I think that to me is a testimony of the fact that God has made the world in such a way that we can experience him and be opened up to him 
in ways that are not just rational, you know, that, that Mm -hmm. his, his truth is hidden in in beauty and experiences of beauty Mm. and that we can, um, that the spirit can work in those things. So that's, that's Mm -hmm. quite a, both a concrete and an unhelpful Mm. question. No, no, it's beautiful. No, it's super helpful. The, are there, is there, are there other, is it, is it mostly music? So when we're talking about art, obviously we're talking about, you know, uh, there's visual art and musical art and all. Are there other pieces? So music makes sense, I think, from what you, you, as people are facing death. Are there other sort of works or literary pieces maybe that have, that have helped Christians and maybe non-Christians as well face death throughout history? Um, yeah, other, other kind of examples that you could give us? Of course. And this is like <laughs> This is like a fun um, preview for the yeah, class. That's I'm teaching. right. This just, is <laughs> very intentional. Yes, you don't want to give so too I much teach- away, but just enough, you know. Yes. So I'm teaching a course this um, autumn on the art of dying and the theology of hope. And um, there's there are there there's a lot of art. The, the short answer to this is there's a lot yeah. of art. <laughs> yeah. And my PhD specifically looked, I did a chapter on visual literary and musical art. So I had mm-hmm. chapters looking at each one of those different genres and kind of how they developed. Um, but like a specific example would be uh, when the plague was going through Europe and it would, some places it killed up to 80% of the population. The church had this realization that they couldn't because, because of, you know, the virus, uh, because it was contagious, they weren't going to be able to pastorally meet the needs of every single person. And so they created this whole genre of art that specifically you could think of wood cuttings, um, but it also kind of spun off at other things as well. The called the Ars Moriendi, the art of dying. That was, that was, it was both a visual and a literary way to teach people to kind of what you needed to know to die. So they would have these specific, mm. um, you know, you're going to, you're, you'd be, it's, it's all in the tradition of, this is getting more nerdy, but of morality plays, which was kind of mm-hmm. dates back to they call it the Psychomachia, which was written by Prudentius. And, and he would depict the Christian soul as, as um, battling embodied virtues and vices. And so a lot of the art would, um, like morality plays, would take the Christian's preparation for death and they would show what virtues do you need to approach a good death? And what vices are likely to attack you. And they would mm. present these, you know, and there's different versions of this. There's either the wood cuttings, um, which say, you know, you might face despair, you might face pride. Um, you might, mm. you're going to need humility because it's going to be really embarrassing to die. Like there are all these kind of mm. very specific, helpful pastoral things, mm. uh, but that helps kind of walk people through in some ways a quite visceral, just like what it is to die, mm-hmm. uh, which is funny because you just never hear people talk about Mm-mm. that in such an open way, I think, but they just needed to. Um, so yeah, yes, there's the morality plays uh, like every man and mankind mm-hmm. that envision that on a theatrical stage. There's the wood cuttings. Mm-hmm. There's um, the dance macabre, which is a, a famous kind of depiction of everybody going down to die and you know look you could be a king you could be a pauper but everybody has to join the dance of death mm-hmm. um so there's there's many different kind of um you know it's not just one-off pieces they're whole no, kind of yeah traditions of using the arts to both help people have a posture of hope but also kind of gird themselves for the the fight of mortality to to, mm. to approach death with without fear, with hope and, and without pride. Yeah. Um, so yeah. there's lots of different. So 
join, sign up for the class where you will get to read and see and listen to many of these works of art and think about kind of the theological underpinnings because they are quite rich to what formed these things and how Mm -hmm. they relate to Christian theology of death and of hope. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, your point on that we don't talk in detail as much about death and the the art of dying or a way of dying is is really interesting because I I have thought about that lately. But then for that time period, for those those pieces that were being composed, especially in the medieval time, like death was so prevalent. And and I mean, we th- we think of the pandemic as being atrocious and it, it was to some extent, but then a lot of those plagues and the past plagues and pandemics were much, much worse that death was just so right up in their face um, mm-hmm. where they had to have those almost... I don't know if you'd call them practices or procedures or ways of going about to talk about death because it's just in your face. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's so many people going through it that we need to like counsel and help people walk this journey. Y- yeah. You just don't often hear that language of like helping people walk the journey into mm-hmm. death. It's like this yeah. thing that's like quite, way over there. Yeah. We're quite detached from Isaac in many ways. Uh, it's funny. So one of my texts I've enjoyed reading with people is, um, Julian Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. Mm-hmm. But one of the funny things about that is you don't think of that as like a work that deals with death, but in the first bit of it, she has this vision of Jesus on the cross and it's incredibly gory. It's like mm-hmm. very, it's like this very yeah. gruesome depiction of a, of, a, of a dying body. But as you read it, you're like, some you could only write this if you, as an individual, were like, quite acquainted with dying right. or dead bodies and that was just because it was it was a normal part of life mm-hmm. um yeah. and you know thank goodness in many ways that it's not a normal part of life right. for us. Mm-hmm. um but there is there is also that reality that we are all going to die mm-hmm. it is it is the truest t- statistic you know yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah and so um i think humanizing that in a funny way and being yeah. mm-hmm. honest about that is is an important pastoral thing that we need to do. And I think we've yeah. all had more acquainted with it, I think, in the last year or two. Mm-hmm. I, I, it makes me think of a couple of things as well, the tradition of memento mori as well, which is that mm-hmm. thing, you know, so um, which is was newish for me and kind of as a tradition until a few years ago, but there's a, you know, there's a skull, uh, usually a skull, something like this, a skull, a time, like a time device of some kind, and usually like a dead flower or something. So something about, isn't it, the passing of time and the presence of death. And, you'd, and in different artworks will have, different aspects of that on there as almost the presence of death mm-hmm. in the midst of life, you know, that kind of thing. But it makes me think about Lent. So, and that whole mm. kind of the recog- the importance of the church calendar in that recognition of we need to actually normalize that actually from dust you are and to dust you will return. It's very confronting for us because of all the mm. things we've sterilized it. We've, we don't talk about it. We're not, in, we're not confronted with it, but makes me wonder about kind of the church calendar and the way that 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 actually helps us mm-hmm. rehearse the things that are the truest truths, you know, that, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, it just makes me. The, the thing that's interesting that. about this for me, if I may, Joy, is, is this was a lot of these art pieces, and correct me if I'm wrong, were being put on by, by the church or people mm-hmm. who were, were Christians or followers of Jesus. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, in some cases it was quite a, I mean, some things are a little more, you might call it parachurch, but a lot of them were explicitly like um, kind of church sponsored discipleship programs via Mm. images and theater. (laughs) And they were kind of, they were kind of gruesome and and graphic in some sense. And so I just think about modern 
are in contemporary today about the films and even literature and how a lot of the things around themes around death and graphic and gruesome things aren't necessarily coming out from from the church right it's it's yeah, more right. it at least f- from my perspective it's it's more coming out from hollywood or the movies where it's it's very graphic like death is kind of up front in your face but yeah that's interesting you brought up lent clear because that's the one thing that i think maybe the church mm. is w- when we come back and we recognize oh we our mortality we are gonna die uh, joy have you seen anything as far as like maybe from uh in modernity with the church in uh, in a similar vein as maybe uh the showings of julian norwich or these other artists and that you mentioned well i was gonna say that's a really interesting thing to touch on because um it kind of depends and i'll talk about the class but that kind of the kind of gruesome depictions of jesus dying on the cross was quite a historically distinctive thing so like that became mm. a big deal and like mm. 900 because before that you would always get pictures of Jesus triumphant on the cross right, because, right. you know, it was interesting also that that was related to, um, you know, Christianity was quite oppressed. I think sometimes we think that like um, comfortable time periods are associated with comfortable artworks. Mm-hmm. But I think oftentimes difficult time periods have quite triumphant, beautiful artwork because that's what they needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, um uh, during the Reformation, there was a huge kind of reaction to uh, what what uh, Calvin calls, I think it's the moping and mawing Christ. He was really against kind of the overindulgence of violent depictions of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these conversations are ongoing and are um, have their historic roots. But it's interesting to think, you know, you wonder if maybe that... Um, that resistance to dealing with kind of the nitty gritty maybe just has carried on in some of our legacies. Um, Mm. But I think a really good example of kind of the the flip side of that, of kind of getting into the nitty gritty, uh, what I think of, I think of the film Calvary Mm. um, with, is it Brendan Gleeson, which is quite a gritty movie. It's about quite a sad, it's about um, basically this, this priest's um, his own kind of tridium, his own kind of holy, holy week. And it's, it's quite sad. It's quite honest about sin. It's quite gritty about human nature and, and in some ways quite violent. But there's also this underlying fundamental hope and beauty that I appreciate. So I do think that there is still mm. art being made um, yeah. and art being made by Christians. Yeah. But I think there's also a difference between art being made by Christians and art that's kind of made for Christian commercial purposes. Mm. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah. Joy, I wonder if you could tell us actually about your podcast that you do and what it's called and then what you what you talk about on that as a fellow podcaster and, and yes. interviewer. Uh, would I you call yourself to... a podcaster, Nick? No. I wouldn't call myself a podcaster. I, I, <laughs> but maybe join as might. A, as so a this... fellow <laughs> conversation starter, as a yeah, fellow conversationalist. <laughs> Sorry, Joy, go for it, go for it. Um, I think, you know, I think I would self-identify as a podcaster. Yeah. I think when totally. I realized that there were like over three days of, uh, you could listen to three consecutive days of me talking on the internet. I think at that point I have to admit. To <laughs> yeah, you're a podcaster. podcaster. <laughs> um, so, yes. So I, you know, have this ongoing relentless obsession with how art, how we can resource art to help us 
engage with the world and engage with our faith. Um, so I have a podcast called Speaking with Joy, and I started it actually the first year of my PhD, which was about a half a decade ago now, which is a weird thing for me. Mm. Um, and it, originally it started as, and this is still kind of my heart behind it, um, a way to both give people to kind of curate good and beautiful art and stories and music. Um, and then also to help people know how to engage with it, because something that I've experienced a lot is I think there can be this desire to read more, to find more art, but then, then people kind of try to do that and it feels overwhelming or confusing. You know, you think mm, I should embellish mm. Karamazov and then you're like, oh my gosh, this page, this book is 900 pages long. What do I do with it? How am I supposed to engage with this? Yeah, totally. So, so the book, so the podcast, um, in whatever capacity I know how I wanted to both share with people good art that I loved and then find ways to engage with it well. So originally the way that it worked was I would pick a theme and I would look at a piece of visual, literary, and musical art to do one of each and that, um, and then kind of talk about them talking to each other. Um, but then that, you know, spun off into many things. So every summer I do a book club and I've done that for the last five years. Um, this summer we're reading, I don't know when this podcast will come out, but this summer we are reading or will have read by the time you listen to this, <laughs> uh, Clara and the Sun by Kazuto Ishiguru. Um, and that's been really fun. I do a podcast for each chapter. I have guests on, mm. we discuss it, and then I post discussion questions online. Um, and then I also just have used it as a space like you all are doing to have good conversations with people mm. about, about art and culture and theology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's been a real joy and it's also been kind of a, a fun overlap with the research that I've done and a good creative outlet. And I think yeah. that um, anyone who's engaged in kind of academic endeavor, you can get really in your head. So I think to be able to have a space where you have to say something in a way that um, isn't complete, like mind scrambled eggs is a helpful yeah. way to begin mm-hmm. to Make find sense. out what it is you're actually trying to say yeah. in your research. Yeah. Yeah, oh, sounds wonderful. And in ways, it's it's kind of just helpful ways of grounding it too, isn't it? Kind of mm. in like, oh yeah, here, here's an example of that that actually yeah. I can talk about and we can talk about together and make sense of together. Which is, but we need you. We need you people with big brains and you know, like who do are bookish and like staying in their heads for the longest time. As long as it comes out like it has in the last you know hour, it's perfect. It's great. Right. We need, so it's like that's where they're like that that academic pursuit is so mm. helpful, isn't it? Where it's like you've spent ages thinking about this and delving into it and going down every rabbit trail and reading books and different things and then actually being able to bring that together in such a way that it makes sense to us is such a gift. And so thanks yeah. for for the the half a decade of study and research and writing and thinking you've been doing. Um and we're so excited that you're going to be teaching a class mm-hmm. uh, at Region in the Fall online. Thank you. I'm excited about it too. And it's been fun to talk with you guys. Thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.